Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. You know, I really don't like this question. I mean, I can see where it comes from, and I don't fault Braxton for asking it. <laughs> oh dear, do I have to answer this one? I, I, don't, I don't know whether this is a question I want to answer, really. It's a bit awkward to admit this one. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. This is the channel that loves atheists. And today we're going to be answering the question of whether there are any good arguments for God, according to atheists. Now, just so you know, this is in a series, but you don't have to have seen the other episodes in the series to benefit from this one, I don't think. This is a standalone sort of a deal. But just so you know, I released uh, sometime back a, que- a list of 10 questions for atheists, and a lot of atheists responded, either with videos or in the comments or whatever. And so I've been going through question by question and uh, taking a look at what they've said and then adding some commentary. And I've learned a lot. I've, I've seen some interesting things and learned a lot more about atheists online and how they think in this uh, sort of a platform. And so this question has to do with whether or not I'm not going to play the clip of the question where I asked it, because all I really did was to say um, of the arguments for God's existence, are there any that strike you as interesting or uh, perhaps better than the rest or uh, or count in favor way in favor of theism, the existence of God being true. Um, in other words, I know you don't believe, I know you're not convinced, but what do you think about these arguments? Are there any that you kind of like or kind of think maybe are worth something? And so the reason that I started thinking along these lines was, uh, as I was putting the list together of 10 questions for atheists, I remembered this clip from a movie called Collision, which involved um, uh, Douglas Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. And it was a documentary of sorts about them going around and having little discussions with each other on college campuses and other places. And uh, Hitchens was asked this question. Here's that clip now. At some point, certainly, we all asked, well, which is the best argument you've yet come up against from the other side and I think every one of us picks the fine-tuning one as the, the, the most intriguing. The Goldilocks yeah. one. Yeah, okay. Fine, the fine-tuning the one degree, well, one degree, one hair different to nothing. But even though it doesn't prove design, doesn't prove a designer, could all have happened without... It, it, you have to spend time thinking about it and working on it. It's not a trivial... We all say that. We all say that. He says, like, I think he means like the among the new atheists later in the conversation, he brings up Richard Dawkins. The design argument is it seems like he's saying the one that's the most interesting, the one that you kind of can't just brush it aside. You do need to kind of take this one a little bit more seriously and, and think through it. That's pretty interesting coming from Christopher Hitchens. Now he says, and someone else in this video is going to say, well, it doesn't really get you to God. It doesn't really, you know, um, it, it doesn't mean or prove design. Well, it, it depends on what we mean by that. If we if we mean by that, it's, it counts in favor 
of design, when you have whatever you have as evidence laid out on the table, this one, this one might seem to indicate a God, um, doesn't mean it proves it, but it seems like maybe it, it's a, it's a valuable thing to put in, in that basket, the basket for God, if we're trying to decide whether God exists or not. It seems like that's what he's saying. It depends on what you mean by prove. If you mean by prove, it makes it absolutely certain. Well, that's not what most apologists are going for. Um, apologists like me don't believe that we can have absolute Cartesian certainty about much of anything. That doesn't mean we don't think we can have what everyone else on earth, you know, normal people mean when they say, are you certain of this? Yeah, I'm certain of that. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. But if you're talking about this deeply philosophical idea of like Cartesian absolute certainty where it's impossible to doubt, okay, I'm not interested in that. I, I don't know that I can get that with much of anything. Um, so instead, we're looking for, is it is it reasonable to believe? Is is there good reason? Is there is there strong enough reason that we think that people who are looking at this with an open mind should believe? I think so. Um, I, I think that's a kind of a modest claim. So prove, I don't know, but it counts strongly in favor of, yeah. And I found it interesting that um, Christopher Hitchens at least was willing to say that was the one that he found interesting. That was the one that you can't just hand wave away or dismiss. So I got to thinking about that. I put it in the list and I got three types of answers. We're going to look at all three today. The first type of answer is, is uh, basically the answer that says, no, there's nothing good. It's not worth anything. I'll run you a little reel of that. Right no, they're all shit. Nope. They're all foundationally ignorant appeals to emotion. A cry out for how theists wish the world was in the face of how it observably is. Honestly, I have nothing. So obviously there are people out there <laughs> who just say, no, that's all there is to it. No, there aren't any good arguments. They're all trash. Okay. I don't know what to do with that so much. Um, this is not meant as an offense to any of the guys that I just played. Um, I don't know who two of them are. I know Godless Engineer, but here's the thing. This takes me back to what I said in a previous video in this series about what I call the star check, not Star Trek, the star check. When I'm going to look at a new book, I want to uh, maybe check out on Amazon. If um, it has all five star reviews, I just go ahead and assume those are people who are fanatics for that particular author. And I don't know how non-biased they're being. Sometimes they are. There are masterpieces out there that deserve five stars. But, you know, in general, I'm not I'm not paying so much attention to the five star review nor am I paying attention to the one-star reviews. Some of these people, they gave it one star. If they could have given it less, they would have given it less. It's just the only way they can leave a review is if they at least give it one star. So they give it one star. I assume that these people are, are so against whatever's being said in this book that they're not exactly being... Uh, you know, reasonable about things either. They're a little bit biased. And so they give it the one star review. Now there are examples of cases where a book deserves a one star review. Okay. Um, but no, I look at this, I look at the two to four star reviews, you know, cause those are the people that are not completely throwing it under the bus and they're not, you know, setting it up on, uh, you know, a throne of gold or something either. They're, they're probably gonna, gonna try to look at this in some, with some level of objectivity much of the time. At least that's the best I can do with Amazon reviews. And it might be the best you can do with a lot of YouTube videos. If someone is looking at the history of Christian thought as it relates to God's existence and the history of the philosophy of religion and um, apologetics and all of that, and they're just saying, nope, it's all trash. There's nothing there that's worth uh, our consideration or is in any way uh, counting in favor of God's existence at all, then with such a person, I, I, that's the star check test. I'm like, you're giving it a one star review. 
I don't really know what to say at that point. I think you should be more interested in it, but that's fine. So that's one type of person that responded to this video. And I'm not going to spend too much time on those. There are others who said, not really, which is kind of similar or in the ballpark of those that, that were in the star check test. But they'll say, here is something about that subject or about that, about one of the arguments that I do find that, that particular issue a little bit interesting. At least it's worth talking about, right? Um, there's something about it that merits our time considering it a little bit more. Um, and, and then there's the, the third category of persons that says, okay, here, here is one of the arguments that I kind of like, uh, that I kind of think is worth something in some way. Uh, so we're going to take a look at these. Now, just so you know, uh, within the philosophy of religion, there are many atheists out there who will say, no, 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 there are good arguments uh, for God's existence. If by good, we don't in, you know, include in that, that you kind of are forced by reason to accept its truth. I mean, you could still be a justified atheist, but let's not act like they don't have anything. There's some really uh, powerful and, and convincing stuff here that a lot of people find convincing and, and, and without being irrational. And so there are people like that that will talk that way. But, um, but, and I could have played clips of those, but let's just, let's just move on a little bit and let's start taking a look at some of these that I think to a certain degree, have something to say that I think is um, is uh, helpful for us as we consider what some atheists have had to say. Now, again, you're going to hear some of them say, no, there's not really anything that I find that weighs in favor of theism, but here's an interesting part of it. All right, that's if that's the best I'm going to get, that's the best I can ask for, I guess. So here's a guy that we mentioned in one of the other videos, Joseph of Suburbia. Here's how he answered the question uh, about whether there are any theistic arguments that you find interesting or that weigh in favor of theism or something like that. Of the arguments I've heard for God's existence, I don't think any way in favor of God existing. However, the one I do find the most interesting is the Kalam, because I do like to hear theist reasoning as to why a first cause has to be a God. Okay, so now typically, and most of you know this, but just stay with me, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the Kalam cosmological, cosmological argument is phrased a little bit differently by different people, but it's something like everything, premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause, premise two, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause for its existence. Now, um, many people will say, many atheists will say, the Kalam doesn't even get you to a god. It just says that the universe had a cause. Okay, well, um, I have a video on that that you can go look. It's in the short videos playlist um, on the Kalam doesn't get you to God. Because frankly, I, I think that complaining about that is a little bit um, to miss the point or to try to wiggle out of really talking about something that there's a lot more to say about. Because when a Christian apologist refers to the Kalam or an atheist refers to the Kalam, um, typically they're referring to the whole ball of wax, the um, the formal argument, the syllogism that I just mentioned, and also the conceptual analysis that follows that syllogism. That is to say that if you take the syllogism to get you to the universe has a cause, then the, the analysis to what that cause must be like or what it reasonably is like. Um, and so what I've said before is saying that the Kalam doesn't get you to God and so it's not about God or whatever. Um, I know that's a popular thing among certain atheists, but the thing about it is it's kind of like saying cigarettes don't cause cancer. 
if I say cigarettes cause cancer, you know what I mean. I mean, right now I'm sitting in a building and probably within a mile of this building, there are thousands of cigarettes. And I'm not worried that any one of them is going to cause me cancer. In fact, I could have a box of cigarettes sitting in front of me right now. And I'm not worried that it's going to cause me cancer. I don't. But if I did, <laughs> I wouldn't be worried that it was going to cause me cancer. In fact, if I took the um, cigarette out and held it in my fingers, I still wouldn't be worried that it's going to cause me cancer. What could cause me cancer is a much fuller uh you know, explanation. If I put the cigarette in my mouth, light it, inhale through the filter into my lungs over time, given a lot of other medical things that need to be described in that process, it could be dangerous to my health in a variety of ways. And one of the possibilities is it could give me cancer. But all of that is presumed when I say something like cigarettes cause cancer. And you know what I mean. That's why the Surgeon General warnings say it as bluntly as they do. And to say, no, no, no. Now, cigarettes don't cause cancer. C cigarettes in and of themselves don't have anything to do with cancer. Well, we all presume that what we're talking about is a process that involves human beings in the inhalation of smoke that contains carcinogens into our lungs. OK, we get all that. Similarly, when we say the Kalam, we're talking most people in this discussion are talking about the syllogism that I just gave. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause and the conceptual analysis that follows it. Now, this individual um, is, is, I think, giving us for the sake of discussion, the syllogism and that the universe must have a cause. And then wondering why does why is God uh, the, the he like or not that he's asking us, but he likes to hear uh, theists explain why God is the best explanation. Well, let's not let him down. I'll tell him why I think God is the best explanation, because if we're talking about the cause of the physical universe and things can't cause themselves to come into existence, then what is it that the universe is made of? Because whatever that is comprising the physical universe can't be the thing that caused the physical universe to come into existence. Well, generally speaking, time, space, and physical matter. As difficult as it is for us to imagine, time is a part of the physical universe, space is a part of the physical universe, and even though it's difficult for us to conceive of an existence where time is not or space is not, um, if the physical universe began to exist and it's a universe of space, time, and matter, then it's at least on the table that this uh, the cause of the universe must not be those things, because wherever you find those things, you're still looking at the thing that was caused that you're trying to explain. So the cause of the physical universe must be spaceless, timeless, and non-material because those are the things that the universe is. And those are the things that we're trying to explain. So spaceless, timeless, non-material. Um, are there things like that? Perhaps abstract objects like numbers or the laws of logic might fit the bill. The only problem with those is they don't have what philosophers call causal powers. They don't do anything. You need something that's spaceless, timeless, and non-material that can cause something to happen. Well, there's another thing about this. It has to be powerful enough, whatever the cause is, to bring the universe into existence or to cause its beginning. And also in a state of timeless nothingness, in a state of where you have no space, time or matter, it has to, uh, in order for something to happen, it can't be a deterministic cause like dominoes falling in a chain, one thing leading to another, because there is no space or time for this determinative process to take place in. It also can't be random because there's no uh, time or space for random things to take place in. And so you're not going to come up with an event, event causation model. It's going to be something like a state e event causation model. And if you have no determinism and no randomness, what's left? It seems the only thing that's left is a libertarian choice. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom and make libertarian choices? Minds do. So in just a few minutes, we've got a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful. We could say sufficiently wise, 
mind as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. And if one were to say, yeah, but you can't give me an example of a mind that is independent from a physical body. This argument also is an argument for a mind independent of a physical body. So therefore, what what you get in the conceptual analysis, I think, is God. And uh, oftentimes what you'll see is when people try to, I think we saw this in one of the very last videos I made, is that when someone tries to come up with something else that would fit the bill of God, uh, fit the bill in place of God and achieve all of those things, they end up describing God, basically. They end up describing something that is so close to God that we might as well recognize it as God. That's how we get to God with the conceptual analysis. Now, I partly gave that because that's going to come up again in the very next question when we take a look at um, Steve McRae on his channel with some other guys. And um, I can't remember the name of their channel. I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, let's see, reasonable, uh, something with reason. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, guys. I should have looked this up. But, but they're really nice guys, and I like these guys. And they've been hospitable and charitable in the past, and so is Steve McRae. So let's take a look at what they have to say about this question as well. So here's that. Uh, no. The, uh, the only one that I find of interest, and I do like the argument from contingency, even though I, do, I don't think it actually gets you to a god, but at least is an argument to say, um, uh, you know, if, if you don't have a brute fact, if you don't accept that there's an infinite regress, then if there's a metaphysical necessity, what would it be? And, and, and theists have every right to posit a god for that metaphysical necessity. How they go about justifying that, that's a little bit different. And also... Okay, now, <clears throat> hold up a second. I, I want to talk about this for just a minute. Because he says the, the theist has every right to posit God on the contingency argument. Well, that's that's great. I'm glad to hear you say that. But I'm not sure exactly what he means by that, given what he follows with. I think what he means is something like, if the contingency argument is taken uh, to show that you must have this necessary being that undergirds and explains all contingent things, including the physical universe, the physical universe on this is a contingent thing. Um, if, 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 uh, if you have to have a being like that, God is one um, among perhaps more than one. He didn't give any others, but one among perhaps more than one possible explanations or possible necessarily existing beings that, uh, uh, is, that explains the, um, the existence of these other contingents. Um, he says, um, we're, we're fine to posit that or we're within our rights to posit that, but then justifying that is a different matter. Well, guess how we would justify that it's God? We would justify it with the conceptual analysis that we just gave with respect to the Kalam. Because similarly, with the contingency argument, if God is the necessarily existing being that undergirds and explains all contingent things, then that means he can he explains the, the physical universe. And what is the physical universe? Space, time, and matter. Which means we have a spaceless, timeless, um, non-material, sufficiently powerful, perhaps sufficiently wise, um, mind as the best explanation, because again, you still need the, 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 the cause to, you can't have a deterministic cause. You can't have a random cause. You have to have a cause that has some measure of Freeman, uh, freedom. Uh, JP Moreland talks about this. Andrew Loki talks about this. So what, what would that be? What has libertarian freedom? Well, minds do. So you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful mind. That's how we would get to that as well. So, um, I like that he likes the contingency argument. And I think the contingency argument, uh, the defenses for how you get to a God and why God is the best explanation work out pretty well. But then he says something else. To me, pausing a God as an explanation for the universe doesn't explain why he created this extent, uh, me, this uh, actualized universe, right? Of all the possible worlds he could have created, why is it he created this one? And without that explanation, we don't have an accounting of why this universe exists. 
Okay, now that's a pretty interesting, and and uh, Steve has been really friendly with me, friendly with me, and um, and so I, I hope you take this charitably, and and as us just kind of in a friendly way jabbing back and forth at each other, but but I actually see a conflation here between two things. Um, he says, without the explanation of why this universe instead of another universe, like from an, some other possible world, God has at His disposal, He could have chosen to create uh, a certain way as a as opposed to the way that He did create and actualize this universe. Um, if we if we don't if we don't have an explanation of why this universe instead of some other, we don't have an accounting of why this universe exists. Now, I think that that statement is to conflate two things about why this universe exists. On the one hand, there is the notion. Why does this universe exist? Meaning what sort of necessary necessary being best explains and undergirds nature? You know, what like like what fits the bill best in terms of the necessary being versus another question that could come up if that being is God, like if the contingency argument works and it's God, why did God choose this one as opposed to some other possible world? Those are two separate questions. Um, what being best explains this versus why did he do it this way instead of some other way, uh, some other possible world? One could still affirm or still think God is the best explanation that the contingency argument indicates God strongly without knowing exactly why God chose to do it the way he did as opposed to some other way that he could have done it, could have actualized some other possible world. Now, beyond that, so that alone is, is it. I mean, that's the answer. We, we don't have to know. I don't know how he's getting to if we don't know why this world is opposed to some other than we don't have an explanation for why the universe exists. You can still have an explanation for why the universe exists. If what you mean by that is why uh, uh, what sort of necessary thing best explains the existence of this universe. Um, but we can actually if but so that put that down. That's that's my final answer. But let's move on a little bit from that and see if we can say something else, because I think we actually can without getting into any particular religion like Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever else, without getting into those, without even moving into those. If you think the contingency argument, if one thinks that the contingency argument gets you to some sort of a God, I think we can uh, do some work to establish some reasons that seem reasonable why this universe instead of some other, even without a particular religion, which I think is pretty interesting. So if you already think the contingency argument works as far as that goes, then one could just say, okay, well, let's take some moral, something from the moral. Now, I'm not saying you have to affirm the success of the moral argument or something from the family of moral arguments to say that that gets you to a God. No, no, no. If you already think the contingency argument might establish theism, but doesn't explain why God chose this universe instead of some other, then it would be reasonable for an individual thinking about this who doesn't subscribe to any particular religion could say, well, it seems that people really quickly and easily seem to intuit very strongly certain moral ideas. And whether you want to get into whether that's objective or subjective is irrelevant to this, because uh, if this God actualized this world, then it seems that it wouldn't be a big leap to say whether these moral inclinations that we have are for the flourishing of our species or come about by evolution or herd mentality or, or groupthink or whatever it is, so even if it's a convention, it seems that this God um, wanted to actualize a universe where people had these moral would develop these moral um, ideas that they that they seem to share the ones that they seem to share. And so from there, it's it seems reasonable to say then this God um, that the contingency argument seems to get you to is interested in morality, whether it's subjective or objective. He seems interested in morality. 
So he wanted to create people that observe some sense of morality. And 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 so. Yeah, but what about all the evil and all those kinds of things? Well, theologians and atheologians have been discussing this without pointing to a particular religion for a long, long time. Um, if you think that morality is something that this being is interested in, well, then uh, I'm not the first to say that perhaps the greatest expression of the moral values and, and goods that we have and duties is if they're freely taken, like if, if someone freely does this. In other words, they have free will. And so that would, again, as, as people use the, the free will theodicy and free will, will defeater to the uh, arguments from evil, um, that would explain perhaps why this universe generally looks the way that it does, because if you're going to give man free will, uh, he's going to use it for both good and for evil. <clears throat> and so that would be one explanation. Perhaps another explanation, if you don't like the free will answer, is one of the other major theodicies, like perhaps the character building theodicy that says uh, such a God might know that experiencing evils will, uh, some measure of evil, will help develop our moral character and integrity. And so that becomes an answer. Ultimately, though, wh whichever of these you take, or if you don't take any of them, the answer that could be given is because, without knowing any of that, is just to say, well, if we think that this God, if we think the contingency argument gets us to a God as a creator um, or, or as the one who explains all of contingent reality, including the physical universe and everything in it, then what that tells us is that this is the universe that best met whatever goals he has. And then everything we said about the problem of evil and all that sort of thing is just trying to figure out further what seemed to be his goals. And so I think there are things we can say about that. But back to the original statement that I made where I said, um, final answer, you know, the fact is, is even if we don't know any of that, it's not true that just because I don't know or any theist doesn't know why God chose to actualize this possible world instead of some other possible world doesn't, doesn't mean that God is still not the best explanation for the existence of this world. That's what I'd say about that. So hopefully that's a little bit helpful. Um, we'll see what uh, Dave has to say. Exactly. Um, I, for, for me, um, I chose to answer this one with the argument from design. There's something intuitional about it. It doesn't necessarily get me to God or make me lean towards theism, but there's something intuitional about that argument. And I think it's one of the better sort of arguments just for, oh, look, it looks designed. Let's talk about this. I now, before we go back to Steve, because Steve's going to say something great in just a few moments. Um, and Dave, Dave, I like what Dave said. Dave says, hey, I'm taking this and I'm answering it straight up and down. Uh, the design argument or a teleological argument or a fine tuning argument. These are all um, similar. That sort of thing. You know, it's at least it seems intuitive. Now, he's not saying he's convinced by it. He says it does just like Hitchens. He says it doesn't necessarily lead you to God or anything, but it, it, it's it's got something going for it in that it seems intuitive. Now, in, as far as it being intuitive, I, I you know, I, I just tell you. Um, there are several ways that uh, skeptics go about responding to a design argument, uh, a particular design argument. Um, so, and if you think design arguments are all reducible to like what young earth creationists uh, often do, they do engage in some form of design arguments, but, uh, people who are theistic evolutionists might still engage in what's, what is typically thought of as a fine tuning argument. These are all teleological arguments, but a fine tuning argument uh, might point to the fact that this universe is seemingly extremely fine-tuned for life to be possible, for life to emerge. Now, there's um, there's a couple of things about this. Some people might say, well, hold on a second now. Um, when we look, so there's this, there's this idea um, called uh, 
pareidolia. And pareidolia is this idea that human beings are kind of wired, whether that's by design or not, would be begging the question to say so, but I think so. Um, we, we, we seem to be wired up to recognize or look for design and think we found it when it's not really there. We, seem, we, we see patterns. If I drew a circle, two dots, and then uh, like a half circle underneath it, you would see a smiley face. And you would you would recognize that as a smiley face, even though it's just some lines. Right. Um, if you look up into the sky, you see what looks like maybe a rabbit in the clouds, but it's not really a rabbit there. It's just a cloud. It's not a real rabbit, but you're you're, you're kind of geared up to look for that sort of thing. That's why when we look at the surface of Mars, we think we see what looks like some sort of face or whatever. Or we look at the moon, we see the man in the moon. You know, th these kind of things happen uh, uh, perhaps because of this principle of pareidolia. Now, uh, some people say that's why we think we see design in nature. The, the problem with that is um, what, when we what we see of, say, the information bearing capacity of DNA, where it looks like we have we, we've got this uh, DNA sequence, this language sequence, this information um, and uh, the RNA copies that from the DNA. It takes it over here and builds these protein molecules that do particular functions and all of that sort of thing. And when we see that. Um, when we when we see that sort of information bearing capacity of DNA, it's it doesn't just passively strike us a certain way like the Virgin Mary on a, on a cinnamon roll or something that actually happened in Nashville, Tennessee, where I um, consider my home hometown, Nashville, there's a bongo Java coffee house. And they had in a glass case, the nun bun was what it was called. Cause it looked like in that case, mother Teresa, it looked like mother Teresa on a cinnamon bun and someone stole it. And then years later, it was returned. It's an amazing thing. The nun bun, it's on all their stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you'd look at a bun that looks somewhat like Mother Teresa or whatever, or the Virgin Mary or something. And and yeah, that might be something like pareidolia. We're not looking at something that kind of passively strikes us like that with something like DNA and an information sequence and all that. It's rather that we already are aware of a language system and systems that copy themselves like that. It conforms to the rules of systems about which we know quite a bit, and one thing that we seem to know is that it's the product of a mind. So those kind of criticisms, I don't think, I don't think fly. Now he didn't raise any of those. I'm just pointing out some of the things that are often thrown in there. Another one is the puddle analogy. Uh, the puddle analogy is the colloquial way of making the point that say, um, perhaps life would have developed in the framework of whatever universe, or at least many different possible universes, um, just in a different way than it has here. If you change the rules up, maybe you'd still get life, but it'd be a different kind of life. One way this is often fleshed out is to say, OK, if you have a puddle of any shape and it rains and the puddle fills up with water, if that water could become conscious and consider its existence, it might look around and say, I am perfectly fitted for this puddle. I mean, I reach into all the different cracks and crevices. Someone clearly designed me for this puddle and this puddle for me or this hole for me. Uh, the problem is, of course, we know that water just naturally fills into to surroundings like that. But that's thought of as an example for this. Of course, it's a terrible analogy. And um, I encourage people to go check out Luke Barnes uh, when he was on Capturing Christianity, discussing fine-tuning arguments. He's been on there a couple or three times, but but the, but the first time, I think, is talking about fine-tuning arguments is really my favorite because he talks about this very issue of what if the universe was different and how could life 
um, have emerged there and what is that like? And it's 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 more sciencey than I'm prepared to get into or 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 prepared to handle. But I can say this much uh, that's on my pay grade, which is to say any old hole in the ground can hold water, but not any old universe can sustain life. And that really gets to the heart of this thing. Typically, when someone like, say, Craig, William Lane Craig brings his design argument, he offers three possibilities. There's uh, um, physical necessity, chance or intelligent design. Well, physical necessity would say that because of the laws, the way they are, it just had to be the way that it is. The universe just had to be the way that it is. Um, PCW Davies uh, doesn't think so. And and he's often appealed to on that. But even if it were that it just had to be the way that it is, that's suspicious to me as well. I mean, why does it suspiciously have to be exactly the way that life would emerge? Uh, the uh, Another off, uh, option is chance. And another option is intelligent design. Those are your options. Physical necessity, chance, or intelligent design. So let's go with chance for a minute. One of my favorite examples of this, take, for example, the balance necessary between electrons and protons. This alone necessitates an accuracy of 1 in 10 to the 37th power. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross um, eloquently describes the chances of this occurring without design thusly. One part in 10 to the 37th power is such an incredibly sensitive balance that it is hard to visualize. The following anal analogy might help. Cover the entire North American continent in dimes all the way up to the moon, a height of about 239,000 miles. In comparison, the money to pay for the U.S. federal government debt would cover one square mile less than two feet deep with dimes. Next pile dimes from here to the moon on a million other continents the same size as North America. Paint one dime red and mix it into the billion piles of dimes. Blindfold a friend and ask him to pick out one dime. The odds that he will pick the red dime are 1 in 10 to the 37th power, and this is only one of the parameters that is so delicately balanced to allow life to form. That's from Hugh Ross as the creator in the cosmos from uh, the uh, third edition. So, uh, so chance seems to be out. That's just one of many things. And there are a lot of people that like to talk about chance. And I think one of the reasons that multiverse um, ideas are, are so popular is because it, we, if you, if you extrapolate out infinitely or something like that, um, the number of other universes out there, then the the chance, the more universes you have, especially if you have an infinite number, the, the greater the chances that you're going to get one like this, right? <laughs> you're going to get one where it happens by chance, even though the chances seem absurd. But there, of course, there's no, there's no, how are you going to demonstrate a multiverse beyond just mathematical hypotheticals? I mean, I don't, I don't know how you're going to do that. So um, some people might try to use quantum mechanics or something, but the idea is here is that I think the design is really good. And I think the criticisms of design arguments fail. Um, but I, I, but I like that Hitchens and Dave here have said, no, that, I mean, that's pretty good. And I've, I've often wondered if um, skeptics, atheists, um, people who are more interested in, in uh, I'm not speaking about Dave or Joe or Steve particularly, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here. I've often wondered if it is the case that atheists in general who seem to be more interested in empirical evidence and, you know, science, scientific evidence like that um, might find the uh, fine tuning argument more interesting because there's more of that going into that. I, I don't know. Um, all right. So that's uh, let's go on to hear what else Steve has to say, because this is where it gets really good. And I don't think that that's bad, um, but I would give one step further. If people want to make an argument at the relationship to things like music, physics, um, mathematics, and there's the, the relationship to how there's a harmony between all these different things to, to implies there's some kind of metaphysical causation to it. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it, you know, it's hard just to say just by, by fiat, hand wave that away because there is an aesthetic thing to be had there. The beauty of mathematics, the beauty of the Fibonacci sequence, 
the, 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 the looking at these things and seeing the elegance that is in there, it does, you know, to some people say, you know, maybe a, a mind came up with this because why, why do we have the ability to formulate these things? Why do they have the ability to count? I mean, math is, math is going to, to me, math, music, and, and art gets you closer to, to God than anything else. And I know, like, like Richard Dawkins hates the argument from aesthetics and, he, you know, discounts that right off the bat. But I, 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 I kind of get pushback on that. I'm like, look, if somebody has a spirituality because they love music and you could be spiritual and not believe in a God, but you feel the music and the empowerment and the relationship between the, the beats and the, and the percussions and the woodwinds and the strings and all these things harmonizing together, and you go, how, how does the universe have something like this? I, I think why I think we feel something like that. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to use the word miraculous, that to me is appropriate there. Although it doesn't mean something from God, it just means that it is, it is almost preternatural that these things in all the universe. We have an Earth where we have our minds. We have people that created this stuff because that stuff may not have happened on other worlds. They may have not. Ha- they wouldn't have art like we would have. They may not have that music like we have. It is very unique to humanity. And, yeah, and so yeah. that would be the only and, and argument, is, that I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there is. There are some arguments that can be made, even if they don't lean you towards God. There, there's some that aren't. You just can't hand wave it away. You've got to have reasonably good arguments to argue against them. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that what happens is a lot of atheist activists hand wave things away. But uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that was probably an answer Brexton was was actually expecting. You know, but. I hope he reviews this. I really do. I like to get his opinion. It is not one that I was expecting, and I'm happy to give you my opinion, Steve. So um, when I'm listening to that, uh, you know, I, uh, so he mentions three things, music, physics, and mathematics. I love that because it's, if I understand what he's saying, he's like, look, um, these things seem to have some sort of a relationship, and it seems almost mysterious, and, uh, and I don't mean to miss... Uh, I don't mean to articulate poorly what you're saying or, or misconstrue it, but um, you get something that is awe inspiring, like music and how, how it makes us feel. And it didn't have to be there. And what's up with that? And how is it that sounds and sound waves and the percussion of drums and all of that mixes together? And there's a math that all of that is described by, and there's a physical world that it's nestled within. And then you of course have the experiencer observing that. And there's this interplay that results in this, sense of awe that that he wants to describe as spiritual even if he's you know doesn't believe spirit in spiritual things the way i do you know there's something about that that it's it might strike people as designed as as intentional it, it there's it doesn't have to be that way he even says there's no reason to think it necessarily would have happened on some other world with some other intelligent beings or something like that yeah i i, I and i and and before i go on to the next clip which is going to be related to that um I don't want to lose that because there is something awe inspiring about it. There is something about it that, you know, other atheists have said that it's like when you, when you look at the beauty of the universe, there is something about it that makes you want to worship something. Like, even if you don't believe there is anything to worship, um, we just were watching last night. This just came into my mind to think uh, uh, Ewan McGregor has this television program that's on Apple TV called The Long Way Up. It's uh, the sequel to The Long Way Down, which was in turn a sequel to The Long Way Around, in which they ride motorcycles around the world. It's pretty cool. And it, um, they're somewhere in Peru or somewhere where we're at right now, and they get out in this big open space, and it's like there's nothing for miles in any direction. 
and they're just blown away. They're in awe of the fact that you're not normally in the modern world, at least in the modern Western world, you're not normally most people in a space that is that open and it is humbling and it almost makes you want to like credit something or someone or worship in some sense. There's just something that moves you. And I've probably gone way beyond what Steve is talking about, but I know what he's getting at. I know what it's like. I know what it's like for me to be listening to a, a, a song that is just so incredibly powerful. Forget the lyrics, just the, the song and the, the crafting of it and the way it just scratches that itch. You almost have to pull over the car and sit there and let it happen to you for a few minutes. You know, I know what that's like. Well, what is that? What the heck is that? You know, uh, that that seems like a feature that didn't have to be there that might be there because of a designer. Now, I sympathize with these guys when they say something like, well, that alone doesn't get you to God. OK, fair enough. But before I comment on that further, because there is something important I want to say about what Steve just said, I want us to back out of that for a second and say something that sounds similar and look at it from something that Roger Penrose had to say in his discussion on Unbelievable, because he talks about three mysteries that um, that I think this is very, very interesting. So just stick with me because this is going to be worth it. Mystery number one is the fact that this world of physics seems to depend so extraordinarily precisely. And the more we explore it, the more precise we see this is. Uh, it's so precisely guided by physical, by, sorry, mathematical equations. Mm. So we have these mathematical, let's not just say equations, that's a bit too specific, mathematical principles, yes. which, which govern in such a precise way the way this physical world operates. Mm. And there is, if you like, a huge mystery. I'm calling it a mystery. These things, we're never quite sure whether... <laughs> is, is this what Eugene Wigner famously yes. spoke of as, as the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics? It just seems to be a, exactly. an extraordinarily remarkable fact that mathematics, it's, the, the, the universe seems to be written in that language and we, we, that we can discover it. That's exactly it, yes. Mm. Yeah. Now... Um, Okay, it just shows that the mathematical theories, when we really understand them and when, when we get them right, they're still not quite right, that's clear. Uh, but nevertheless, the precision is extraordinary. So that's mystery number one. Mystery number two is how is it that conscious experience can arise when the circumstances seem to be right? Now, it doesn't seem to be probably... <laughs> I can't, I'm just guessing, but I don't think it's present in that glass or in the water in the glass. <laughs> right. uh -huh. But nevertheless, it seems to come about with certainly with human beings and I think with other animals. I don't think it's unique to human Certain beings. Certain brain at all. structures somehow seem to give rise to, yes. to this consciousness. And there is a genuine mystery, mm. I think. And it's not just a matter of you know comp complicated comp computations, there's something mm. much more subtle going on. Mm. So that's mystery number two. And mystery number three is our ability to use our conscious understanding to comprehend mathematics mm -hmm. and these very uh, extraordinary uh, and self-consistent but deep ideas which are mm -hmm. very far from our experiences. So that's the how we how we comprehend mathematics, if and, you like. And in that, yeah. So uh, this this. Uh, may not be exactly what Steve was getting at, uh, may not be at all what Steve was getting at, but he had mentioned music, which uh, is something perceived by conscious observers, physics, uh, talk about the world and then mathematics and um, and the interplay that is there. And what Roger Penrose is talking about here is he's like, look, this is 
strange. These are three mysteries. You've got um, you've got the mathematics, right? The mathematics is let's I'm going to use my own language here, but let's say that we've got three categories of things, right? You've got uh, mathematical principles and perhaps numbers or abstract objects or whatever. But even if they're not, you've got this world of mathematics that is not um, uh, dependent on the physical universe. And then you've got the physical universe. And these two things are not in any way directly connected or whatever, but yet the physical universe is described by mathematics to an incredible precision. And, and I, I actually edited that clip a little bit for time. I encourage you to go check out the whole thing. It's all really good, but he actually talks about how, how precise it is. So you've got those two things. And then you've got this third category, which is consciousness. Now, I don't know that Steve, and I know a lot of atheists wouldn't go this far, but he's saying, I don't think you can just say this is just really sophisticated computations. There is something far more mysterious going on there. Okay, so you've got this consciousness that is weird. You've got, you, that's one category. You've got the physical universe, that's another category. And then you've got mathematics, which is another category. And somehow the mind is able to perceive these, these numbers and think about them in a way to apply them to the physical universe. And the physical universe is explained by these numbers, not explained like in terms of its existence, as we were talking about before, but but there's an applicability there that's that's amazing. And what is up with that interplay of these three different categories? That is really interesting. That is really strange. And what would explain it is if what was fundamental to all these things is a mind that intended for this interplay to exist, to be there. Um, that the, 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 the physical universe was written almost with this language of mathematics and that these minds were meant to perceive of that and function within it. Now, um, even if you don't think like, like, let's take what Steve said, which has more of the feels, right? Because of the aesthetics and the, and the, uh, the beauty of it and, and the awe and all those kind of things. Let's take what he said. Let's take what Penrose said. And even whether those are similar or completely different, Let's not build them into big, structured, formal arguments. Okay, let's let's drop that for a second. Let's just say that those are pieces of data that we agree are true about the world. Like you don't have to actually agree that in um, the Platonic elements or you know these sorts of things, but just to believe that whatever that is, it is happening. Um, that that you as an agnostic, Steve, or you as an atheist, Dave, or or whatever Dave is, I don't know that he's an atheist, but you as an atheist listener and me as a Christian, that we we all agree that's happening. That stuff is going on. Okay. Now, you may not build an argument from that. All I I think one could and one has, but just as a data point, just as a piece of data about the world. Now, let me just just stay with me. Don't go anywhere. Just stay with me for just a moment. I want we're, we've only got a couple more clips, but I want to just very quickly sketch out for you something. In my first question in this series of 10 questions, I asked for people to give me some things that are facts about the way the world is that we agree on, that I agree, that Steve agrees, that we all agree these are facts about the way the world is. And, and, and that, that atheists think that their worldview that contains a, that includes an atheistic position a be, explains better than my worldview. In other words, let's look at the facts and say, whose worldview makes the best sense of that. And a lot of people didn't like that. A lot of people found that difficult. It's, it's a form of abductive reasoning, uh, inference to the best explanation. It's also a form of worldview analysis, but, but a lot of people didn't like that because they say, well, look, even if your theism or your Christian theism can account for all these things, it also accounts for nothing because I don't believe that your Christian theism is true. Hold on a second though. This is not that weird that we do this all the time. 
this is what I'm trying to get at. So let's imagine this, this discussion of the data points and the cumulative case for one's worldview that we're building out of them, like individual pieces, individual tiles in a mosaic. So you know what a mosaic is like. You've got a floor um, or something that is made out of all these tiles and it makes a picture because each tile is colored just a little bit differently. And so when they're all together in the right order, they make a beautiful picture of something, Jesus or Richard Dawkins, whatever you like. And it makes this, makes this picture. But if you only have one of these tiles, it doesn't make the whole picture. You can't tell anything from that one tile. Well, what I'm suggesting is that each of these data points that we put together um, like in mind, we might say, and we don't have to rehash all of this. People that respond to this video, you don't have to rehash all of this. This was in video one, but, um, but, but like I might say, uh, uh, be- our understanding of beauty, um, our the free will, the, at least the, uh, the, the, whether you believe free will is real or not, our impression that intuitively that we have something like free will, morality, the rapid expansion of the early church design, not in the form of a big design argument, but, but design in the sense that Dave brought it up. It's it's just strongly intuitive. Um, uh, these kind there's a lot more things, near death experiences. We could talk about all kinds of things. Um, and, and, and I'm saying these are all little data points that we agree are true. Like whether you believe near death experiences are in any way supernatural, you believe that there is something happening right? Even if you think it's chemically induced. All right. So with any one of these data points, I get that atheists have an explanation from their perspective. I don't think like, oh, you can't explain this. I'm not one of those kind of guys. You have an explanation. What I'm saying is we put all these data points out there on the floor, all these tiles, and we arrange them. Do they arrange better into Jesus or Richard Dawkins, right? Do the, do, do, when we have all these facts about the world in this realm that we're talking about on the floor, the picture that emerges, I suggest, is a picture of theism or, in my case, Christian theism. Now, come back to what we're talking about with Penrose and what we're talking about with McRae. They are bringing out a, a fact about the way the world is that I suggest is a data point, right? Maybe two data points if you think they're substantially different. And yeah, an atheist could say something about how they explain that. I think they have a tough time with consciousness, but that's precisely the point. If you want to go with some kind of panpsychism or something, I don't buy it. And I don't think that makes the best sense out of this tile, out of this data point. When you put all these together, I think that Steve, what Steve McRae points out, it may not be some big argument. I think that's why you hear these guys saying it doesn't necessarily get you to God. You could have it without God. Okay, fair enough. But where does it make the best sense? That's what I'm saying. I'm saying when you put all the tiles together, what picture emerges? Maybe that'll help with people who maybe misunderstood my first question. I don't think these guys misunderstood my first question, um, but just for those listeners. All right, now uh, let's move on to someone else. The prophet of Zod, I think, is next. And uh, he responded to me. I've made two videos in response to him. Let's see what he has to say. You know, I really don't like this question. I mean, I can see where it comes from, and I don't fault Braxton for asking it, but the fact of the matter is, I'm not aware of an argument that makes me consider theism at all. And I hate that answer because it sounds closed-minded. But it's my honest answer, and I really don't think it is closed-minded. Because do we need to be able to identify a convincing argument for every supernatural proposition that comes our way in order to be open-minded? To help see what I mean, just ask yourself, which argument most makes you consider the possibility that the Earth is flat? or that the Cottingly fairies are real. You might not be able to identify an argument that makes you consider either. Okay, now hold up just a second, because 
This is already pretty interesting. Now, I like what he's doing here. He's trying to help you look at it. You're a Christian, so you might be buying what Braxton's saying, just kind of prima facie. But think about it with other things, things that that you probably aren't convinced of. Here's the problem. I think these are bad analogies, the flat earth and the cognitively fairies. Why? Because notice that he uses examples of things that are proven false, that like are demonstrably false. We know what the cognitively fairies were. That's all come out. Um, uh, I think the, the, the girls who were involved in it agreed that, that, that uh, those photographs, at least, were of uh, cutouts or something, cut out of a storybook or something like that. I think one of the girls did hold on to the claim that, uh, that at least the last photograph was real, the fifth of the five photographs. But, but the point is, we, that those have been demonstrated false. The flat earth, even though there are people that don't buy it, I think has been demonstrated false. Um, and, and which, by the way, when you're using analogies that aren't exactly analogies, because there aren't things that you just don't don't have any reason to believe or whatever. These are things that you actively disbelieve in. This stacks things in your favor. What he's really saying is that you shouldn't have to point out interesting arguments for things that have been proven false. Both the flat earth and the cognitive fairies are items that I take to have been demonstrably proven false. This is a bad analogy. And if prophet of Zod is a lack theist, like a lack of belief atheist. And I don't know that he is, but if he is, then it also commits what's been termed. And I feel like a jerk every time I say it, cause it's my name, but the hunter's dilemma, um, because he's set, he he's come, he's using as analogous to the God claim when, if he's a lack theist and he might not be, but if he's a lack theist, he's saying, I don't know whether God exists. And we're talking about bare theism here, not Christianity specifically. If, if he's saying, I, I just remain unconvinced, I lack belief, I haven't seen any good reasons to believe, it's not that I'm saying God doesn't exist, then why are you using analogies for things that we all actively disbelieve in? We all, meaning at least you and me, Prophet of Zod, and most of our listeners, we don't affirm the flat earth. We believe that's demonstrably false. We, be, we don't believe in the Cottingly fairies. We think that's demonstrably false. So we need a different analogy. So let's pick one. Let's go with something I think that's better, like aliens, for example. Uh, in, intelligent alien life. Um, let's take something like that. I don't believe in aliens. I don't yet. Ha I haven't yet seen evidence that has convinced me of aliens. Okay. But I also don't claim that they don't exist. I don't have any reason to believe I haven't, there, there hasn't been, um, anything that necessarily is compelling evidence to show me that intelligent alien life doesn't exist. So here I am. Um, not knowing, but aware of several lines of argument. I am not really convinced. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't count for something, depending on which one you show me, but I'm not really convinced with the fuzzy, grainy photographs that look something like someone with a paper plate being thrown across the yard. That doesn't really count for much to me. Now, that's not to say there aren't some photographs that might be compelling. And I think there's something out there that some people are finding really compelling right now. I, I don't know. I, I'm just saying in principle, someone might give me one. That, but what I've seen so far doesn't really do it for me. What I do find interesting are the hundreds of thousands, millions, I don't know, of people who have claimed to have had experiences of abductions or encounters or something like that. And there are similarities across many of these and, and that sort of thing. And people from every walk of life, I find that darn interesting. Now, does, am I convinced? I'm not convinced, but I can tell you what, I find that really interesting. And someone could build an argument out of that, that I would find pretty interesting. So I am able to do it with 
analogies that are proper analogies for what we're talking about. I just don't think that he provided us with one. And in fact, I'll go a step further and say what I what I've said before, which is um, when it comes to something like aliens, if you had evidence for intelligent life from another planet that is at, that is as convincing as something like the Kalam cosmological argument, then you'll find me wearing a tinfoil hat in the middle of the desert tonight. But I don't think such a thing exists. But I'm I'm genuinely open. By the way, I noticed that a couple of these guys said something like, uh, "Well, I I don't I don't want to sound like I'm not open, and it could sound like I'm not open to say that I'm not I don't like any of these arguments or that think they don't count for anything or something like that." You know, honestly, I didn't even consider that when I was asking this question. I think they presumed that I had some kind of angle like, well, if they won't tell me at least one argument they think is pretty good, it means they're not open minded. Um, Well, maybe it could be something like the star check that I realized after I started this series. Um, I don't know that it means you're not open minded because, again, there are some books that deserve a one star rating. Uh, But that's interesting, isn't it? I, I don't know that it means you're not open minded. Um, at all, but it, it is, it is interesting that I noticed a couple of guys saying, I don't really like to answer this question. And I think the reason was because they felt like it meant they weren't open-minded. That's interesting to consider. All right, let's move on and see what else he has to say. That's the case. It's not your fault. Just as there might not be sufficient evidence to make you believe them, there might also not be sufficient evidence to make you consider them. So you shouldn't feel pressure to name an argument that makes you consider something you haven't found worth considering. Okay, now notice he concludes this by saying that you shouldn't feel pressure to name an argument that makes you consider something you haven't found worth considering. Am I to take Zod as saying here that despite running an atheist YouTube channel and responding to Christian apologists, he finds the subject not worth considering about God? I find that really odd. I mean, it could be. There's nothing inconsistent. He could say, no, I'm running this channel. I don't want to speak for him. He could say, I'm running this channel because it's entertaining for me to talk about, or I think that religion causes some, some damage, and so I want to counter it, but, but yet still maintain that he doesn't find it worth considering. Or maybe he's just thinking of a hypothetical person out there who's not as invested as he is because he has a worldview-related channel who might not find it worth thinking about. But um, I don't, I, that strikes me as very odd for someone who runs, um, a YouTube channel that promotes atheism to say that, or, or to indicate that, um, I, I don't know, is he saying it about himself or somebody else in some way indicating that this might not be worth considering at all? I, or I, or, I don't know that that seems weird to me. Um, all right, let's keep going. I'd bet Theus looking in from the outside can clearly see how this is fair for other propositions. And while they may think theirs is better evidence than the rest, they should have the self-awareness to recognize that they're looking at their proposition from the inside and to recognize that everybody thinks their supernatural proposition is better evidence than the rest. That said, well, no. Okay, hold up now. Um, That's an interesting point. Christians could see this, I think he's saying, by looking at this, maybe looking at other religions from the outside. I think somebody says something like the outsider's test of faith or something. I, I don't know, something like that. Um, and and I should I should be able to see that. Well, I I shouldn't have to tell you which argument for a particular religion I think is better than the others that they offer. Well, actually, line up your arguments for Islam or for atheism or for um, Hinduism. If you give me several arguments, I think I could probably tell you which ones I find more interesting than the others, even if I'm not convinced by any of them. When it comes to atheism, for instance, I'm able to do this. I am able to tell you which arguments I think are better that atheists offer. I think that specifically the evidential arguments from evil 
are are pretty good. Not good in the sense that I think they demonstrate the truth of atheism or something like that, but good in the sense that um, they're really convincing to, to a lot of people. They're really compelling. There might be something intuitive about them as well. Um, they make you stop. I think Christians should not, and theists in general, should not just hand wave these and dismiss this. It requires some work, like Hitchens and Dave said about the uh, design argument. I, I think that there's something to these. Now, in the book by Daniel Howard, it's not edited by Daniel Howard Snyder, The Evidential Argument from Evil, I've mentioned a few times. That someone in there, and it might have been Draper, says something like, um, since it's a probabilistic rather than a logical argument, uh, the evidential argument, then if any of the theistic arguments work, well, then that's game over for the, 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 this argument. Um, but still, I, I, and we have responses. We have, you know, the, the different theodicies that I've mentioned already in this episode, free will, heaven, theodicy, reform, theodicy, uh, character building, soul building, you know, those sorts of things. Right. So I think we, we have explanations for them, but that's still not to say that's just saying I'm not convinced. That's not to say that I don't think that that's an interesting argument that taken alone might count in favor of atheism for some people. I don't, I don't know what's so bizarre about being able to do that with, with a particular argument. And I could do it with Islam or Hinduism or whatever. If they line up several arguments, I can tell you which ones I think are, are better. I, that doesn't mean I'm convinced, but I, some lines of reasoning are better than others. But anyway, let's see what else he has to say. Argument drives me to consider theism. I do find many theistic arguments interesting. Christians have spent a lot of time weaving them, so untangling them is an interesting mental exercise. And in the process of discovering where theism takes mental shortcuts on various topics, I'm forced to think more deeply on those topics than I otherwise ever would have. In this light, the arguments I found most interesting have probably been moral arguments and, more recently, any line of argumentation that treats abstractions as things that exist necessarily outside material reality. Our thoughts can feel like ethereal things swimming around in our heads, so they're one of the easiest things to misunderstand and thus one of the last refuges of apologetics. Okay, so with this one, I, I like this because he does give me some things, but I take him in this last clip to be saying something like, there are ideas or other realms of thought that come up in theistic arguments, and I find some of those interesting. Well, great. I do too. Me too. Uh, but we then get this statement that seems akin to, apologists have had to retreat into these areas that are obscure. Um, if that's not fair, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be uncharitable or anything. I'm trying to get at, he says, apologists have had to retreat into these areas. Um, but conversely, I think the more we learn from philosophy, science, and history, the stronger our arguments have gotten. I mean, um, the, the evidence we have from science that at least our universe had a beginning now, when that wasn't always thought to be the case, um, the, the historical manuscript evidence gets better all the time when we're looking at first century documents and what m uh, the writings of the early church and and um, and that sort of thing and and uh, stuff related to the uh, the gospels and things that, that's gotten better over time. Um, when it comes to philosophy, our, the way we think about things, the way we understand things, has has all been beneficial to the the theistic arguments i the design i mean when you talk about the more we understand about the cell and we understand about dna and all those kind of things and the complexity of our universe and how big it is and how uh, unlikely it is that life would would form i mean all of these kind of things have only made it stronger so i don't understand this idea that we have to retreat into some kind of obscure realm i, I think that actually as science and philosophy and history have continued we have simply gotten more good reason to hold to the reasons we have for believing in God. In fact, I said this in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, and I think it's still true, is instead I think what's happened, and this is not me just doing chest thumping, I really believe this. 
I think that the reason you have people saying things like, well, I can't tell you what evidence would convince me. I just know that, um, that, um, I haven't seen it yet. And if there's a God, he should be able to give it to me or something like that is I think that as, um, as we see more and more stuff coming out more and more, we learn more as, as humanity and we go further in these different realms. What we see is skepticism having to raise the bar higher and higher and higher for what counts as good evidence. Um, and, and it's gotten to the point that, that they have to raise it so high that they don't even know where the bar is anymore because that's how bad it is because there's so much good reason to believe. Every physical object and concept in the universe can be used as a part of a argument for God's existence. And this is why, even though I think that the divine hiddenness argument, which didn't come up here, is a good argument for atheism insofar as I think it does have some intuitive stuff and it's kind of compelling uh, to the man on the street or something like that. At the same time, um, I, I just don't see the absence of God in the way that some people do. I mean, I get it. Why doesn't he show up on the White House lawn or somewhere um, or in Jerusalem like once every 10 years just so he can check back in and say, in case anybody's forgotten, I really do exist. Um, and we could talk about that and I do in other videos. But uh, barring that, I think that that uh, that um, it's extremely uh, evident. Uh, I'm not saying that someone's dumb if they don't see that. I'm just saying that um, uh, the evidence that we have all around us is incredibly strong. So with that, we're going to move on to the last person that we're going to take a look at. And that is Noel Plume and Plum, Noel Plum, Noel Plume. I'm not quite sure. And uh, let's hear what he has to say, because it's super interesting. <laughs> oh, dear. Do I have to answer this one? I, I, don't, I don't know whether this is a question I want to answer, really. It's a bit awkward to admit this one. And I, and I don't know whether this is one I've ever really gone into on film. So in terms of the sort of rational, logical and scientific arguments, I don't really think there are any... Uh, that there are any that washes for me but there is sort of arguments or, or there may be not arguments but trains of thought that that flatter my own perceptions of myself I, I suppose or my own internal sense of grandiosity that I, I just can't imagine not existing it just seems like I say it almost cringe to say it but I almost feel like I'm too special not to exist anymore how can a universe exist that would allow me not to exist anymore it, I, that sounds terribly immodest doesn't it and and even as i'm saying it i'm thinking how does that come across but i doubt i'm the only person who thinks like that it's probably part of our sort of evolutionary adaptation to sort of avoid death that i'm trying to appease that and and, and figure some way in which i can kind of continue existing indefinitely that it's just hard for my brain to pass the idea of my own non-existence but there are times definitely where i feel like that where i, I find it hard to comprehend the idea of me not existing and in those times my brain does grapple trying to find is there some way is there some logical thing that could lead me to believe or presume that there is some way that I could survive my material demise. The logical side of me always takes over and arrives at a no, which is always somewhat depressing at the time, I must admit. 
but I would say that is as good as it gets. It, it's not an argument. It's not a religious argument, but it's an emotional appeal. It, an emotional tug that sort of flatters my own sense of, of personal grandiosity. And I think most humans have that sense of personal grandiosity. It's not necessarily that we think we're better than everybody else, but that we somehow feel that we're so special. <clears throat> that we're so special as a sort of sentient self-aware agent that how could we possibly not continue to exist? Yeah, so now this one's interesting. First of all, every time I see him, he's just hilarious. But here, here's the thing. I, I like how open he is about that because I know there's a lot of people who just be like, well, that's dumb. Um, don't you know that you didn't exist for a long time and, and the world went on fine without you or something? Uh, but there is something interesting about this. First of all, it's, it reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote that always gets uh, rolled out that um, if I find in myself, you know, he talk, he's talking about how he has, um, if, he, if he desires food, well, there is food. If he desires water, there is water. You could do it with sexual. If I have a sexual urge, there's sex. There's all these different things. It seems like if you have this yearning, there is something in this world that in some measure for some time does satisfy that to some degree, but there is a longing that I have that that is for something that nothing in this world offers. So clearly it seems I was made for another world. Um, well, I'm not saying like as an argument, like that's convincing or compelling, but, um, but you think about it, we have, he, there is this longing that he's describing that nothing in this world will satisfy. And ultimately this, this world will, will dissolve in him. Um, on his perspective. Now I, I actually, he says that he, the way he makes sense of this the longing that he has is it's a desire for self-preservation or something. It's, it's that everyone probably thinks about themselves. I'm that special that I just can't imagine the world going on without me or something like that. But I'm not sure that's a good explanation. Maybe, maybe for him, maybe with what he's experiencing, but I've never had that particular intuition. I have had that intuition about other people. Let me tell you what I mean. So with myself, um, I could easily enough go with what many people say, which is, well, you know, the universe existed. You know, I wasn't there when the Egyptians built the pyramids or whatever. Um, and, and, and even though I can't like actually conceive of what non-existence would be like, because it wouldn't be like anything to me, I would just not exist. Um, I'm aware that there have been times where I didn't exist. There was a time when I didn't exist. So it's not that big of a deal, even like for me to conceive of my non-existence. On the other hand, I had a really close friend who was a pastor who died at 88 years old. He pastored one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in Nashville, Tennessee for a long time. And I went and spoke at his church every year for about 11 years until he died. And it was somewhere in the early teens that he died uh, in 2012, 2013, something like that. I spoke there the last time. And, and he died. Now, he, he was very cogent and aware right up to his death. Likewise, um, uh, a friend I had who was my children's pastor when I was a little kid and then was the children's pastor at one of the churches that I pastored. And his name was Brother Alvin. He always wore an Alvin and the Chipmunks uh, pin on his tie. And Brother Alvin had a big personality. Well, now, uh, anyone who's ever lost someone close to them like that can probably connect with this. But as I sort of philosophically thought about it as I was at both of those men's funerals, I'm looking at their body. I'm seeing them dead. I know that those neurons are not firing. That heart is not pumping blood. But the notion that that personality does not exist struck me as absurd. I'm not saying it is absurd. I'm saying it struck me that way. The idea that Bob Mowry, who was the pastor, that he that he 
doesn't exist. Of course he exists. He doesn't exist here, but he must exist somewhere because the idea that that personality is just nowhere is just gone. Seems on the face of it. Dumb. You know, same with Alvin Pollard, the, the, the guy who had such a personality. So I, I, so I'm not saying that's like a big argument or something like I agree with him. I wouldn't make that into an argument. I don't use that as an apologetic, but I have to admit that whether I should or not in my own thinking, that kind of, that kind of serves as a, little tiny part of this mosaic that we're building on the floor. It's a data piece that we sense that that needs to fit in somewhere. And so perhaps it would be a part of a cumulative case like that, where it's a piece of the mosaic or a thread that one thread among many that makes up a tapestry that has a beautiful picture of Jesus or say Richard Dawkins. <laughs> I think that tapestry is of Jesus. I've really enjoyed this. I hope you have listened. If you appreciate what we're doing, subscribe to the channel, click the notification bell. But hey, if you don't, if you really appreciate what we're doing, then you can help us out by partnering with us at patreon.com slash Trinity radio. I hope you'll check out the other um, shows in the Trinity Commission, Leighton Flowers at Soteriology 101, The Bible Bro Down with Matt Chisholm and Billy Wendelin, uh, Chris Date over at Theopologetics. I, I think you'll get a lot of good stuff out of all of those. I've been on all those shows. They're great resources. And with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.